Nehemiah, which can be found on page 491. And we're starting to read from the very last few words of chapter 7 through to chapter 9, verse 3. So that's Nehemiah, page 491, the last few words of chapter 7. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women and others who could understand, and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattatiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah and Maasiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jozebad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered round Ezra, the teacher of the law, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms and other leafy trees to make temporary shelters, as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. 
they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading is found on page 1094 and that's Acts chapter 2 verses 36 to 42. 1094, starting from Acts 2, verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Thank you, Andrew and Nicola, for, for reading. Good evening. So, um, we've, had, uh, we've had this thinking Christian slot in, in the diary for some time, and uh, Kevin a few weeks ago asked me, "Oh, you know, Dan, what are you go- what are you going to do it on?" And so I I sent him a list of like five options. And I said, "Hey, here's a few ideas. Um, let me know what you think." And after I sent it, I thought, "Why did I include revival in that list? I really hope he doesn't come back and ask me to do revival." <laughs> Guess which one he did it? He picked. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we can meet as brothers and sisters in Christ tonight to worship you, to pray to you, to sing songs of praise to you, and to hear you speak to us um, through your word. Father, thank you for how you've um, revived the church throughout the ages. Uh, We long that you would do that again uh, in the future. Father, we pray that you'd help us. Um, this evening, um, yeah, to, to, to want that, to desire that for the church here and for the church in this nation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In, in February this year, there was news of a Christian revival happening at Asbury University in Kentucky in the U.S. It, it all started out as a re, uh, during a regular chapel service. So after the sermon, there was a time of prayer, and the prayer just went on uninterrupted. And for two and a half weeks, people just continued praying and praising God in song and sharing testimonies. Now, I'm not going to give a a detailed description or analysis of the Asbury revival. The reason I mention it is because it put revival back in our consciousness. It put revival back on our radars. But what exactly is revival? So some of us have heard of the more well-known revivals, like the Welsh revivals and the Great Awakenings. Or maybe we've heard of the Scottish revival in the Isle of Lewis in the 1950s. More recently, in the 80s and 90s, there was a massive revival in China. And today, there's a great revival happening in the church in Iran. Many Iranians are turning to Christ. But what is 
revival. Not only does the Bible not give us a definition for it, but also uh, people often mean different things by it. A helpful definition I found is the one provided by the theologian J.I. Packer. He says, Revival is God renewing the church. Revival is God turning away his anger from the church. And revival is God making known the sovereignty of his grace to the church. What is emphasized in that definition of revival? God and the church. In short, God is the agent of revival, and the church is the locus or location of revival. Since the, the church is the locus of revival, then it follows that revival is always, it is always corporate. And this is really important. Revival happens in and amongst God's people when they're together. Indeed, this is the pattern that we see in, in the Bible wherever there's a, there's a renewal, whether that's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. And it's also the, the pattern that we see in revivals that have happened uh, since the first century. Revivals are always social, corporate events. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that you need a huge gathering of Christians for there to be a revival. I recently heard of a tiny English village in the 1800s that only had 60 inhabitants. A Christian farmer who lived there started to regularly meet up with two, two friends to pray. And over time, this little prayer meeting grew and grew. And within four years it had transformed into a church of 700 people. That's quite remarkable, isn't it? I suppose we could rightly call that a revival. And it started off as a gathering. Even if only a small one, Christians got together and prayed. Now, why do we need to understand the importance of Christians coming together to pray or to worship? Today, we live in such an individualistic culture. So, so we can forget or downplay the communal aspect of worshiping God. Friends, if, if we miss church on a Sunday, let's be honest, how much does it bother us? I don't deny that there are genuine reasons that people that prevent people from making it to church on a Sunday. But generally, to what extent do we feel discontent when we're unable to gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ to worship God? Reading your Bible on your own, praying on your own, singing City of Light songs on your own, listening to a podcast sermon on your own, those are all great things to do. But they cannot replace hearing God's word, praying and singing together. They can only be a supplement to doing those things together. Today, as we, as we think about revival, it might be worth pondering whether one of the reasons it tarries in this country is because so many Christians see Christianity as more of an individual thing than a corporate thing. Today, many think that Christianity is something that can be done in isolation. Maybe that's because, partly because our culture tends to speak of, of faith as being personal or, or private. But Christian faith, although, of course, you do have to own it Personally, it's more, it's more of a public, corporate thing. I recently spoke to someone who said he was a Christian, but when I, when I asked him what church he went to, he said, I don't have a church I regularly go to. I mainly just listen to sermons on my phone. 
What's the problem with that? Christianity isn't like self-help, something that you can just do on your own. Christianity is something that is done in the context of a spiritual family. Why did God give us the church? So that we could worship Him together. Just think how how disrespectful it is to effectively say to God, God, I know the church is your idea, but personally, I don't think I need it. I wanted to lay that groundwork because if we're going to understand revival, then we need to, we need to grasp that it happens in the midst of God's gathered people. The passages we're looking at today are in Nehemiah and, and Acts. And that's because I wanted us to see examples of God working powerfully amongst his gathered people in both the Old and the New Testaments. And as we look at them, I want us to observe three marks of a revival. Now, I want to clarify that these marks are not a formula for revival. Just because these elements may be present in Christian gatherings does not guarantee revival. Why is that? Because God is the author of revival. God is the one who brings revival about. So so we can't orchestrate one or manipulate God into creating one. So why bother looking at three marks of a revival? It's because as we consider these three marks, we're going to see just how biblical they are. These three marks are are basically just three signs of a healthy church. So when a church displays these marks, well, well, we shouldn't be surprised if God does choose to bless that church and send revival. The church is simply doing what it was meant to do. And folks, there's there's nothing spectacular about these marks. They're actually pretty ordinary. One pastor who studied revival says this. Revival is the normal work of the church, but just super normal, multiplied for a moment. So there was more prayer, there was more preaching, there was a growth in holiness, and there were conversions because people were sharing the gospel more and people were drawn. There's nothing really extraordinary about that, is there? Friends, how encouraging. God has brought about revival when Christians were just doing regular Christian things like praying, preaching, sharing the gospel, and growing in godliness. Let's turn now to to our three marks of a revival. The first mark is this. God's word is central. Whether you look at Nehemiah or Acts, and we're going to be flipping between the two, so apologies for that. You might want to keep a finger in each. Whether you look at either at Nehemiah or Acts, you can see that God's word plays a key role in the reviving of God's people. So have a look at Nehemiah, Nehemiah 8, from verse 1. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. You can imagine them chanting, bring the book, bring the book. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate 
in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Fast forward to verse 8. They, that is the Levites, read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. And then when you look at verse 12, we find that the people are celebrating with great joy because they now understood God's word. In this passage, God's word is clearly at the center of the renewal that is happening amongst God's people. Similarly, in in Acts 2, after the coming of the Spirit at, at Pentecost, in verse 42, we learn that the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So in both Nehemiah and Acts, you've got a type of revival happening, and God's word is at the heart of both of them. I recently read this book called The Korean Pentecost and the Sufferings Which Followed. It's published by the Banner of Truth and was written by by two former missionaries to Korea from America. And this book, it describes the rapid and tremendous growth of the Korean church. So as far as we know, the first Korean convert to be baptized was in 1883. Yet today, 29% of the South Korean population claims to be Christian. That's around 15 million people. And again, today, apart from America, no other country in the world sends out more missionaries than Korea does. How God has worked in the Korean church in the past 140 years is nothing short of amazing. But here's how the authors describe the Korean church, the authors of this book. It's known for its emphasis on prayer, Bible study, personal work. I think that's one-to-one and and pastoring, pastoring people. Sacrificial giving and missionary activity. What does the church do? It prays and it studies God's word. And from that flows personal work, sacrificial giving, and missions. Friends, on the one hand, that is so ordinary. But on the other hand, it's extraordinary. God worked powerfully through the Korean church. And all the church did was prioritize God's word and prioritize prayer. The prioritization of prayer is our second mark of a revival. Just as prayer was was prioritized in the Korean church, it was the case in Nehemiah and in Acts. Again, in, in Acts 2, where it says that the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, it goes on to say that they also devoted themselves to fellowship. to to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Again, notice the emphasis on the, the corporate nature of their faith. So the church in Acts prayed together. It was a vital part of what they did as a community. And it was also an essential part of, of the renewal in Nehemiah's day. So in Nehemiah chapter 9, you've got the Levites leading the Israelites in prayer. For example, in chapter 9 verse 5, we see them blessing the Lord's name. And then in verse 32, we find them making an appeal to God. Now, 
there's more to the prayers in Nehemiah 9 that, than, than what I've just shared, um, and we'll cover, we'll cover that in our next point. But for now, I just want us to appreciate the importance of prayer in the life of God's gathered people. Whether in Acts, Nehemiah, or the Korean church. Brothers and sisters, to what extent do Christians and churches today value prayer? Do you know it's one of the least attended, me- uh, least attended meetings we have? It's our monthly pe- prayer gatherings. Why is that? Is it a coincidence that people who are usually available to come to small and local and connect on Thursdays aren't present for those Thursdays when, when we have our prayer gatherings? This isn't an issue just in our church, by the way. This is a widespread issue across UK churches. When it comes to prayer meetings, the numbers go down. Why is that? I wonder if, actually, as a church, or churches in the UK generally, could conduct surveys to find out what prevents Christians from, from coming to pray more with other Christians. And I'm not just saying, oh, this is, you know, this is the fault of Christians not being committed or devoted or whatever. I think it's also a question that leaders should be asking. You know, how do we do our prayer meetings? How do we run them? Could we maybe do them slightly differently? I don't know. But why are prayer meetings so poorly attended? Is it because we find prayer meetings a bit boring? Is it because deep down we doubt that God answers or or hears our prayers. According to Tim Keller, prayer requires humility. Because when we pray, we're acknowledging that we're weak, that we're helpless, that we're dependent. Now, friends, who likes to admit that there are any of those things. We live in a social media age where we want to portray that we are amazing and we have everything sorted. So we only post photos on Instagram that portray us in a good light. Maybe as Christians, we need to be reminded that we are, we are weak and helpless people who need God. We are dependent on our gracious Lord. Why why don't we own that and lean into it rather than trying to pretend that everything is hunky-dory in our lives and that we don't actually have any needs? You see, the world claims not to need God. Why do we imitate the world? Let's own the fact that we need God and pursue Him in prayer. Friends, when when you're asked, how can I pray for you? How do you tend to respond? Do you ever have that, that internal dialogue the moment you ask that question? Should I share what I'd really like prayer for? Maybe I can just share something a bit generic. I don't want to say I don't have any prayer needs because then that might be a bit arrogant, might come across arrogant. But, you know, I I don't want to be too open or, or they might think I've not really got my act together. And how might that reflect on me? Probably best just to keep up appearances. And share something generic. My friends, maybe you've never had that internal dialogue. I certainly have. (laughs) And it's so, so foolish. 
Friends, I need God, and so do you. So let's not pretend that we don't. Rather, let's regularly meet with one another to pray to our Heavenly Father. And let's remind ourselves what a privilege it is to be able to do that. Lord, have mercy on us for so often neglecting prayer. Forgive us. Let's turn now to our third mark of a revival. Sin is confessed. Now this mark is is closely tied to the previous one, to prayer. And that's because we could say that confession is a form of prayer. Yet I thought it was important to have confession as its own category rather than as a subcategory of, of prayer because there are some important distinctions between the two. For example, you could pray for hours on end yet never confess sin. You could just make tons of petitions to God without ever confessing the sins that you've committed against him. That's one reason I wanted to draw a distinction between prayer and confession. Here's another one. Prayer is something that can only be done to God. You, you can't pray to another person, or at least you shouldn't. You can only pray to God. But when it comes to confession, not only can you confess your sin to God, but you can also confess it to others. Indeed, in the Bible, we're taught to confess our sin both to God and to one another, aren't we? In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 3, we find the Israelites confessing their sins to God, and they're doing that publicly in front of one another. And towards the end of the chapter, this is what they say, so 9, verse 33, as they're praying and confessing, in all that has happened to us, that is, all the hardships that has come upon us, You, Lord, have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. That's actually a summary of of the whole of chapter 9, where the people both extol God's righteousness and confess their sin, their guilt as a nation. So we see that God's people in the Old Testament confessed their sin. And this was a key part of their renewal or reviving. And it's similar in the New Testament. Speaking to the Israelites in Acts chapter 2, Peter says in verse 36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This group of Jews in Acts, they heard the gospel and they were convicted by it. That They felt the weight of their sin and guilt and they acknowledged their need for change. And we learn later in the passage that they repented and were baptized. Friends, confession of sin is something that we need to keep doing. It's not just something you do when you become a Christian. And we keep doing it because, well, we, we should keep doing it because we haven't 
yet stopped sinning. That will only happen in the new creation. Although we hope that by God's grace we will continue to grow in in holiness, that doesn't mean that we will be fully done with sin while we're in this world. So friends, confession of sin can't be something that we neglect. Yet I worry if that's exactly what the 21st century church in the West does. When you, when you look at devotional books that have been written in the, in the last 20 years or so, and when you listen to prayers across churches today, I want, like, how much of an emphasis is there on confession? I remember visiting a church where they just had um, a time for prayer. Someone was leading that, that prayer, and it was just confessing sin. They just spent the entire of that prayer slot confessing sin. And I thought it was beautiful. And, you know, the other day I was, I was looking through the Valley of Vision, which is a compilation of prayers from about 500 years ago. And in that book, confession is infused throughout. It's just all over the place. And it made me think of just how much better I think we could be today at confessing sin, both corporately and individually. Why is confession of sin so neglected in our day and age? There's at least a couple of examples, um, a couple of reasons, sorry, I can think of. Firstly, I suspect that it might be related to our to the therapeutic culture of our day, which is all about making us feel better about ourselves. And because what our culture most cares about is making people feel good, it's very hard to ever call, call out or confront sin. So our, our therapeutic culture is very reluctant to ever say that you're guilty or responsible for anything. It'll really say that the blame lies with you. Rather, the blame always lies with others. Can you see how this culture or mindset hinders us from, from reflecting on the sin that is present in our hearts and in our lives? It's also, it's also because of this culture that we, should, we shouldn't be surprised that our society not only fails to, to call out sin, but fails to even recognize sin. So things that are very clearly said in the Bible um, to be sin are today actually regarded as, as being wholesome. As long as something feels good and, hey, as long as it feels right to you, then, hey, it it cannot be a sin. And if the Bible says it's a sin, it's either because the Bible's wrong or we've misinterpreted it. That's, That's the narrative of today, isn't it? Friends, do we buy it? even a teeny-weeny bit. We need, to, we need to consciously and actively resist that narrative because we're being fed it every single day. You and I, every single day, that narrative is being fed to us on social media, TV shows, music, your office, your workplace, your school, You name it. You're being fed it. Now, I'm not saying, hey, stop watching TV. Don't go into the office. Don't go to school. I'm just saying, be aware that the world is trying to convert you. It wants you to think like it. 
Friends, we are not as innocent or inherently good as our society would have us believe. We, we, we are sinners. Yes, sinners saved by grace, but still sinners. So confession has to be a priority for us. Let's regularly confess sin and run, run to the fountain of grace. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Here's another reason why I think we tend to neglect the confession of sin. We want to preserve our reputation. And this applies especially to to the confessing of sin to one another. We don't want others to know about our struggles with sin, do we? We fear that that they might judge us. We fear that they might think that we're rubbish Christians. I was struck by by how the Korean believers um, in the early 20th century would confess sin. (laughs) They would do so publicly. Listen to how this book describes a one particular meeting. Every sin a human being can commit was publicly confessed that night. We may have our theories of the desirability or undesirability of public confession of sin. I have had mine. But I know now that when the Spirit of God falls upon guilty souls, there will be confession. And no power on earth can stop it. He goes on to describe how grown men would wail over their sin. He says, man after man would rise. It's in their their meeting. Man after man would rise, confess his sins, break down and weep. After another confession, they would break out in uncontrollable weeping. And we would all weep. We could not help it. And so the meeting went on until 2 a.m. with confession and weeping and praying. Folks, the Korean church was convicted of her sin and confessed it. And to be honest, it sounds a bit like how the Israelites in Nehemiah were convicted, convicted of their sin and wept over it. Do we weep over our sin? Do we hate our sin? Do we confess our sin? Or when we're with one another, do we pretend that actually, you know, we're not that sinful. We don't really have, we don't really struggle with sin. Do we give give off that sort of vibe? Here are three marks of a revival. God's word is central. Prayer is prioritized and sin is confessed. And here's a bonus mark, which I'll share very briefly. So at the end of, it's it's persecution is endured. Persecution is endured. At the end of Acts chapter 5, we find the, the apostles rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for Christ's name. So they go, yes, we're being persecuted for following Jesus, for following Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine any of us doing that? If we were persecuted, we'd think, whoa, what? I just stopped doing whatever I'm doing, so I'm not persecuted. And we might think, hey, if, if, if I'm being persecuted, maybe I've done something wrong. Maybe I'm not quite doing something right, but actually, when we're persecuted, that's often a sign that we're doing something right as a church. Often where there is revival, there is also persecution. 
Now, this isn't always the case, but I do think revival often brings persecution. If you look throughout history, um, that is a pattern. And you see it there in Acts. And it shouldn't surprise us that there is persecution of Christians, right? When the, if there's revival, the church is growing. <laughs> because look, the world and the devil, they hate it when the church is strengthened. So friends, if or when, by God's grace, we do see revival, do not be surprised if persecution follows. Rather, endure the persecution. When we, when we persevere through persecution, it's a huge witness of our faith and of Christ's power in us. Folks, you should read this book about the church in Korea and the persecution it went through. I won't share the details of the persecution because it'll probably make you squirm. But it is truly amazing how the church in Korea grew in light of the tremendous persecution that it faced. Now, why do I even bother sharing about the church in Korea? Um, I think in some ways, our situation may not be too different from the situation in Korea 140 years ago. Um, the UK is, is a lot less Christian than it was. Church attendance is low. Um, and we live in quite a pluralistic culture, right? And many people don't, many people in our society don't know the gospel. They don't know the Bible stories. So it's almost like the puzzle pieces aren't there. And so when you share the gospel with them, it's not like maybe 100 years ago when most people in the UK would have been familiar with Bible stories, so you could preach the gospel and the puzzle pieces come together. Now it's like, you know, talk about Abraham, Moses, and they're like, who are they? Um, talk about Jesus, maybe you heard there was a teacher or something. That's, that's about it. In many ways, so our culture now is, is what we could call post-Christian. And a post-Christian place has a lot of similarities with a pre-Christian place like Korea. So there's this little knowledge of the gospel. And what encouraged me about seeing what happened in Korea is that people with little to no knowledge of, of Christianity became Christians. And the church exploded. And I think that's an encouragement to us. In a culture where, in a pre-Christian culture, where you know, in Korea most people were Confucianists, they were into um, the Shintoism, Buddhism, that, that, those, are the, those are kind of isms that were popular around there, right? Today, we've got, you know, agnosticism, atheism, Hinduism, Islam. That's not an ism, but yeah, you know what I mean. Um, we live in a multicultural society. That doesn't mean that we can't hope for revival or we can't expect revival. I think we can. So let's not be discouraged. Friends, there's, there's so much more that could have been said on the topic of revival. But tonight, I wanted to consider some of the hallmarks of what we might call a revival. I hope that, that we will long for revival. I hope that we will pray for it. But above all, I hope that we will have a greater desire for the Lord, that we will want more of Him. And that desire would play out by us continuing to prioritize his word, to prioritize spending time with our Heavenly Father in prayer, and to regularly confess our sin. 
Those things might seem pretty ordinary, but God can work mightily through them. So uh, let's not neglect that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how you have worked in intense ways in your church throughout the ages, all over the world. Your stories of revivals. Father, we long to see revival in this land. We long to see revival here in Banstead and, and, and beyond. Father, we do pray that you would send it. Um, and Father, we pray that your church would put, continue to put your word right at the center and never drift from that. And we pray that your church would seek you in prayer. Forgive, forgive us for often neglecting it. And Father, we pray that we would be those who, who come to you regularly confessing our sin against you and against one another. And Father, may we not run away if or when persecution comes. Father, we do pray for revival in this land, and we pray that you would save people from every background, from every different type of religion, from every different type of culture. Renew your church and grow your church in this country. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're now going to sing our final song. It says this, Restore, O Lord, in all the earth your fame. And in our time, revive the church that bears your name. And in your anger, Lord, remember mercy. O living God, whose mercy shall outlast the years.